and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This podcast is part of the project Governance Under Decentralization, Oman and in the Arab region. Today, we talk to Dr. James Worrell, who is a professor in International Relations and Middle East Studies at the University of Leeds. We talk about his latest research, which looks at the decentralization process that has been taking place in Oman since the 90s. James explains the difficulties that Oman faces in the process, as well as the lessons that other countries can learn from. This study has recently been published as a GLD working paper. You can find more information about James and his research in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ella Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So James, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm very excited to talk about your work on Oman and particularly thinking about decentralization there. To help everybody situate what we'll be talking about, can you give us just a brief overview of politics in Oman and how the Omani system might look a little bit different from other places? Yeah, sure. I think Oman's got um, an incredibly complicated history and, and you need to kind of place it in context within the history in order to really understand why um, the country has become so centralized, I think. Um, so ultimately, at the beginning of the 20th century, Oman was was actually named Muscat and Oman, which indicated a, a kind of a clear division between the, the coastal areas of Muscat controlled by the Sultan and the interior areas of Inner Oman, which were largely controlled by an Ibadi Imam. So it was technically one country, but there was a, a clear political division between those two spaces. And that political division also is partly a tribal division and ultimately, in a sense, is a, is a cultural division between a more conservative interior and a much more cosmopolitan coastal area. And Oman had been uh, effectively plagued by forms of political violence and tension between the two entities, between different tribal elements, but also by um, a wider threat from the Wahhabis, um, coming from, from what's now Saudi Arabia. So the place was um, pretty violent and disturbed for um, large parts of the 20th century uh, with periods of calm in between and the sultans on the coast um, spent a huge amount of time trying to kind of forge those elements together to make a, a formal state and it only really starts to come to fruition under uh, Sultan Qaboos's father, Sultan Said bin Taimur, who um, was kind of thrust into power at a young age and um, inherited a lot of problems from his father and spent the pretty much the rest of his reign trying to overcome those particular issues of fragmentation. So Oman faced a, a pretty severe insurgency in Inner Oman from 1954-55 right the way through to 56-57, uh, which had to be uh, quashed with uh, British troops, special forces. Then, of course, it faced the Dunafel War um, in the early 1960s, which ran right the way through until about 1976-77. Uh, again, that was fought with British assistance. And Caboose really comes to power uh, in a palace coup in, on the 23rd of July 1970. And he is um, attempting then to effectively build a state from scratch. It was a very rudimentary state that existed under his father, certainly nothing modern. And of course, the, the country remained fractured between, with all these tensions still ongoing. So he has to kind of build a, a brand new modern state from scratch with British assistance. 
and he makes that state as centralized as possible. He creates a, a new uh, national narrative. And of course, his big push is on development. Oman was a, a very underdeveloped country, even after the arrival of oil exports from 67 onwards, not a huge amount of development had actually taken place. So there's a huge boom in development. And of course, development has to be driven centrally, as you'd expect in the 1970s with all the ongoing ideas about modernization theory and, and these kinds of things which were dominating the discourse. So the country became centralized both as a direct kind of technocratic need to, to actually deliver this, this complex development, um, but also as a political discourse having experienced so much kind of strife, if you want to put it that way, over the course of the 20th century. The caboose is, is nation building on multiple fronts and, and I don't think it's too surprising that's why the state becomes uh, heavily centralized over the course of uh, his reign. The particular political system, of course, concentrates power in Caboose. Caboose has all of the main kind of government portfolios. He's Minister of Defence, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Governor of the Central Bank, Minister of Finance, etc. So he, he actually controls pretty much all the, the levers of power, which have led to some people um, terming it the Caboose state, famously. I, I don't think necessarily we have to go quite that far. But clearly, this is an extremely personalized form of rule derived from his legitimacy from having brought the nation together and delivered this, this kind of miracle, in a sense, of, of development from, from pretty much absolutely nothing to, to being a, a modern, pretty advanced, wealthy nation. Uh, it's, it's an impressive record, and, and that legitimacy kind of goes to him. And a lot of people in Oman put down the, the fact of the Renaissance and Mata to him. Uh, and his leadership in particular. So his leadership, therefore, isn't necessarily challenged very much because the legitimacy runs deep. And that, in a sense, enables him to drive through his particular vision, but it also enables the building up and concentration of power in him and in the Omani state, which in some senses, therefore, goes against what you might traditionally expect to see in Oman, which, of course, would be much more connected with traditions of debate, uh, consultation, shura. Oman has historically been a, one of those societies which, particularly because of its Ubadism, but also because of its cosmopolitanism, lots of different voices are heard, spaces are, heard, are created for voices to be heard, people are listened to, their ideas are taken into account. So there is a, a culture of debate and discussion, um, which in a sense partly contrasts with the, the strong centralization um, of the, the modern Omani state. I mean, just to, to clarify, in a sense, would you say it's a, it's a culture of taking those opinions on board in, making, in decision-making that's centralized in the Sultan and in, in, in a very personalized state? Is that a fair way to put it? I think um, it's probably a little bit more complex than that. I mean, Caboose used to make these quite famous tours around the country every year, stopping in little villages and and sitting down on the rug with various people from the village and anyone could come up and ask him questions, make petitions. So the state and, and he personally has been traditionally pretty open. In the latter uh, years of his rule, that tradition as his health declined kind of shrank a little bit. But there, there's always been that um, the element, the idea that you can somehow access the Sultan and, and petition and engage and, and be listened to. And of course he has also to a degree encouraged other members of the royal family, other ministers, other bureaucrats to, to also have that kind of open door policy in a sense. But as the state becomes more complex, it's harder to, to maintain those kinds of relationships. And therefore you start to see from the 
from the mid 80s onwards kind of these more structural reforms to to try to build in ideas for consultation partly that's through um, having government at a relatively local level through the governorates and through the wilayats very local kind of government governments um, devolving some of the ministry structures into regional offices to be heard a little bit better but also through um, other mechanisms like the arrival of the Majlis Ashura, the State Consultative Council uh, and the Majlis Adawa, the, the State Council where Caboose directly appoints to the State Council um, experts in various fields so that their voices are heard or people from different communities so that the, the, the two the bicameral system is relatively balanced so for example when the Majlis Ashura elections happened and only one woman was elected. Caboose was disappointed by this and therefore appointed lots more women to the, to the state council in order to create a balance. And I think that's one of the, the good things about Caboose is he recognises the different communities, the different elements of Oman and tries to bring them all together so everyone feels that their voice is heard. So I think it's um, it becomes a more structured system but still partly led by Caboose later on, particularly after elections. And then of course the the arrival of local elections after the Arab Spring in 2011 to municipality level, governor at level, council elections. That's a whole new kind of extra layer of, of engagement and consultation. So I think you've got this, this interesting contrast between the two as Shura becomes more institutionalised rather than simply a, a culture or a norm. Yeah, and I guess what I was also wondering and like to reflection on is how much it is about decision making in the, the elected measures or in the in the in the shura and as well as you know at the lower levels or how much it is about like you said uh, making your voices heard petitioning is, is it about transmission of opinions and ideas or or decision making in, in the people in a sense. I think it's much more about the transmission of ideas and opinions. It is, um, in some sense, a bit of a pressure relief valve, but it's also so that people, that intelligence, the data can be gathered on on public opinion, um, the particular needs of the, of the public. So alongside policies being floated, there's often public consultations around those particular policies as well. Um, so it is very much about a, a listening exercise and, and rather less about direct decision-making inputs, although I do think that that is beginning to change in certain areas, particularly after some of the reforms of the Arab Spring, where the, the Majlis is given extra powers to, to, to scrutinise, to, to suggest amendments, and in certain areas now to, to even suggest legislation on areas which are, are less high politics and much more concerned with everyday people's lives around social and economic issues. And I guess, you know, one of the things I think that's worth pointing out, um, because I found it just very striking, you know, you think of Oman as a, as a heavy oil producing state, and of course it is, but, you know, compared to its neighbors, if we're thinking of Kuwait or Bahrain or the UAE, it is, it is so much larger in population centers. You know, they're both reasonably sizable, but they're also quite a distance away from each other, which I think just makes thinking about Oman and politics there, a different issue than thinking about it in the UAE or Kuwait, for example. So yeah. I just think it's worth pointing that out because it can be easy to, I think, overlook the importance of something like decentralization or even deconcentration without thinking about the scope and the size of the country itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oman's um, slightly larger than the UK, geographically speaking. So it's a, it's a fairly significantly sized uh, nation. And of course, it also has 
islands like Mazira, and of course it also has the Musandam Peninsula as well, which um, further complicates things being not actually territorially contiguous with the with the rest of the state. So um, there's quite a lot to think about geographically, although of course most of the population do live in the greater Muscat area, as you'd kind of expect with a with a centralised state and the way in which Muscat has kind of sucked in people from the countryside is, is common across the, the Gulf and the, the wider Middle East, of course. But there are still significant population centres in Inner Oman and, of course, down Dofar as well. So that creates an added layer of complexity where you have to ensure that those particular voices are heard. And, of course, historically speaking, given the, the cultural differences and uh, the issue of the separatist movement in Dofar, Dofar war that has given Dofar additional status so therefore it's its local government its municipality its governor actually sit inside the Diwan of the royal court outside of other structures to to give that direct personal link to uh, his majesty uh, and I think that's quite important politically it also means of course that Dofar has a uh, a special status and a, and a sense that it, that it is special within the country just like Muscat does Muscat municipality also lies within the, the Diwan uh, Sohar municipality after the Arab Spring has kind of been moved under the auspices of the Diwan to give it that extra status and those municipalities um, do have additional powers above and beyond other municipalities in the country so I think that again kind of reflects some of the, the history but also shows that there are kind of special statuses for, for different places, even in a fairly centralized state. Right. I actually find that very, very interesting in and of itself, right? The ways in which it really has a, you know, almost a sort of a federal structure in that, you know, they would never call it that, that way, right? But, but to that extent of really treating some of the areas quite differently. I want to get a sense of first what it means when we talk about decentralization in Oman. And, you know, if you can also give us a sense of why they, you know, why bother to decentralize in a relatively kind of strong, personalized, centralized state? I think it's a really good question. I think ultimately, Oman, while it does have oil and natural gas, it is quite expensive to get the oil out of the ground in Oman compared to other Gulf states. The oil is generally of a, of a good quality. So there's a very slight premium on Omani oil above other Gulf oil, but it's not a significant premium. And so Oman doesn't have huge oil reserves, its gas reserves are bigger, and that means of course that it has to um, be a little bit more parsimonious. So during the 80s when the oil price crashed, um, that put some quite severe pressure on Omani budgets, and the Omanis were having to make some pretty tough decisions, particularly at a time when uh, development was still um, needed to be pretty high um, to push the country forward rapidly. So I think the, the big issue there is, of course, that um, it then becomes about how you kind of shepherd this oil wealth and spend it most effectively. So Oman had a system of, uh, has a system of five-year plans. And um, by the time you get to the fourth five-year plan in the early 1990s, there are certain parts of that plan that simply can't be funded with the oil price as low as it is. And so the Omanis have to kind of cast around and, and look for ways in which they can potentially make savings and spend their money more effectively. And decentralization is one of the things that they hit upon. And I don't think it's too surprising. Oman has been, in a sense, very open to, to Western ideas. It's very much influenced by kind of global discourses coming out of the World Bank, IMF, other international organizations. Oman, in fact, is, is the only country in the world that I know of that in its constitution, its basic law, enshrines um, capitalism as its economic model. And so you shouldn't be too surprised, therefore, that um, it is influenced by that Washington consensus in, in various ways. 
Not that that uh, is overwhelming, because there, there's always a recognition of a need for a balance between a man's specific needs, its history, its need for centralization, efficiency, alongside um, being influenced by these global norms that are emerging. And so in the, in the fifth five-year plan, which is launched in 1995, and is coupled with OMAN 2020, which is the bigger plan for the country, you start to see decentralization creeping in. Obviously, decentralization is already a pretty much a, a big buzzword in the development community, in the international financial institutions already. And you start to see it beginning to creep in there. And I think, um, I think there's two aspects to kind of devolution of power, decentralization. The first is this need to, to be efficient. Uh, but the second is also the recognition that perhaps this model can temper some of the over-centralization that's happening and bring some elements of the system closer to the population, thereby secure elements of legitimacy as the state becomes more complex. So I think there's, there's two kind of core goals to decentralization processes. What's even more interesting, I think, is that they don't necessarily just slavishly follow the model of the, the global discourse at the time. Uh, that they they take elements of it that them they use elements of the language but they don't necessarily mean the same kind of things that you see uh, in those much more kind of donor driven forms of decentralization they maintain control over the process um, rather than having it kind of taken out of their hands so it becomes kind of a specifically omani model of decentralization which looks rather different uh, in some ways to elsewhere can you describe the, the sort of the Omani model in a bit more detail for us? Yeah, so in the paper, I, I actually describe it as something um, which I label um, controlled hybrid decentralization. Controlled because ultimately it's the state that makes these decisions. This is not really a bottom-up kind of form of decentralization. Because in fact, there isn't necessarily any kind of organized demand for decentralization. This is a, a top-down form of reform. Um, hybrid in the sense that it, it mixes different models uh, and in my conceptualization of decentralization in the paper I, I talk about four kind of different forms of decentralization. The first is the way in which particularly after 2011 reforms have been made to push down power structures into the municipalities and to give them a bit more power, make them uh, directly elected etc. The second uh, is privatization. I think privatization is clearly a form of a decentralization in the Omani model and that's a more recent innovation uh, and is clearly also driven by the need for efficiency in the terms of driving down prices of utilities and, and reducing subsidies but also making the the utilities more responsive to the needs of the public one of the problems that the, the Omanis that you speak to kind of bring up over the past sort of 10 15 years is that state institutions are becoming a bit less efficient, a bit less responsive to their particular needs and demands. One of the reasons for privatization is to increase efficiency, or, or, or hope at least to increase efficiency. Uh, and it's really only in the past year or so that privatization laws have been passed. So that's a, a more recent model. Uh, but the state still retains necessarily a majority stake. The third one really is actually a form of kind of direct decentralization coming directly from the sultan himself, which is the creation of new authorities which report directly to him rather than through necessarily ministries. So this is things like the creation of um, free zones, industrial zones, where a lot of power is given directly to these particular zones in the country and their particular authorities which report directly to the sultan himself. Um, and in a sense that um, is good for international competition. Um, some of these zones are uh, 
the dot-com report is, is the really big one that's been uh, invested in significantly, but also the Sahara Industrial Zone as well. Um, they have uh, received significant powers to issue their own visas, um, to pay significantly less taxes, um, but they also have certain responsibilities for the provision of goods and services in their particular area. So in a sense, that's a form of decentralization because you're really kind of pushing power down to quite a local level and, and giving these authorities, which are not elected by the people, but are expected to be quite responsive to the particular needs of their neighborhood in that sense, where they're located. They obviously are ultimately then responsible to the Sultan. So he maintains a, de a significant degree of control, but also gets some of these benefits of efficiency and legitimacy off the back of, of the creation of these new authorities. Um, and then we, we also see, I think, um, another form, which is the, the decentralization, the devolution of power within existing structures. So you see this significantly with the Ministry of Health um, since that fifth five-year plan, uh, which has really moved some healthcare provision and responsibilities down to wilayat level. And of course, some of these wilayats are very, have relatively small populations, a couple of hundred thousand. So that means you know, that they can be very responsive and budgets have been devolved to that particular level as well. But what's interesting is that the Ministry of uh, Water Resources and Regional Municipalities, which is in control of most of the wilayats in the country, actually still has some quite centralised structures at ministry level for dealing with some of these healthcare um, devolved reforms. In more recent years, we've seen similar things happening uh, through the Ministry of Education as well, the passing down of powers to headmasters and individual teachers that were previously concentrated at ministry level in a sense, kind of letting professionals make very localised decisions for specific schools, uh, which is, a, again, a pretty new phenomenon for Oman. Um, so I think there's, there's these kind of four main forms of decentralisation occurring in the country. And you've already sort of alluded to this a bit in terms of sort of thinking about so how Sahar might be different from, from Dofar, et cetera, but can you give us a bit of a sense in terms of why we see these differences and how, how we do see sort of geographical differences across Oman with regards to these processes? I think in some ways there's a, a degree of standardization um, because you do have the Ministry of Water Resources and Regional Municipalities, uh, which is quite an important ministry. Uh, and that ministry does keep a reasonably tight rein over the areas that it particularly controls. But then, of course, you have those other kind of special zones. So Musandam in recent years has been brought under the Diwan, um, Sahar after 2011 and then of course you've got Muscat municipality and uh, Dofar municipality which um, actually covers the entire governorate of Dofar slightly confusingly it's called a municipality but it's actually uh, a governorate as well so there's all kinds of slight anomalies particularly in, in phrasing but I think because Muscat had been a municipality for quite a considerable amount of time uh, and was a very efficient municipality and has developed a a reputation for being innovative and responsive. It has been given greater freedoms by the state. Um, so it's been able to develop new technologies. It's been able to raise revenues, particularly from things like um, parking fines. So Muscat adopted um, text messaging to pay for your parking pretty early on, for example. And that, in a sense, has, has kind of opened up as Oman has begun to follow elements of kind of e-government, starting to see quite um, localised through the police for immigration, customs, etc. But you're now starting to be able to see individual police stations being able to issue passports within sort of half an hour, an hour. 
So there's a great deal of kind of efficiency drive coming through this e-government thing as well. But you, therefore, I think you have certain levels. So you have certain municipalities which are, because they're more directly controlled by the Sultan and have a special status, they're allowed to have slightly more power. That power is still relatively controlled, um, but they've got much more influence over raising revenues and, and different areas in which they can they can have authority than other smaller municipalities across the country. And some of that is down to um, historical quirks. Some of that is down, I think, to the necessity of, of having a bit more autonomy for a, a municipality like Muscat, which has bulk of the population living within it. And some of it is also down to um, just the patchwork of, of where the populations are and the efficiency of delivering services. So sometimes services might be more efficiently delivered um, through a centralised mechanism than a localised mechanism. I think one of the amazing things about Oman, when you really start to, to travel deep into the country and, and drive for hours and hours across mountains and deserts, is you, you stumble across these tiny little villages, literally up a wadi in the middle of nowhere. There's one road in, one road out. And when you get there, there's a school, there's a clinic, there's a mobile phone mast, there's a basketball court and a football pitch, there's a nice new mosque. The state is present there. Now, whether or not a local government in that area would be able to deliver that kind of level of service, or whether it's better to use a kind of uh, a model which is much more centralised, is is quite debatable. So I think to some extent it's also about the the concentration of a population when uh, a local government can then become more efficient compared to the central state. Often in these smaller districts, the military play a significant role um, through engineering corps, through helicopters, transport and getting good services, people in and out of these places. And it's debatable whether a municipality could deliver that level, that quality of service to these really, really remote communities. So I think there's, uh, there's an efficiency element to that as well. You know, one of the things that strikes me about it, so, you know, my colleagues and I have been sort of charged with thinking about what lessons other countries have to offer Oman with regards to decentralization, right? But it also seems like Oman has a lot to offer other countries and, and scholars really with thinking about this, right? In part because of this kind of variation, we have varied models within Oman. We have, you know, very different sort of contexts and the questions about then what is, you know, what works best. And, uh, and it, like you said, a much more hybrid approach, which is, I think, instructive in and of itself, right? So I also thought about, you know, what, what are the lessons that Oman has for other countries or for models of decentralization kind of more broadly. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I, I think Oman is, is really fascinating in this regard. And I think um, it's all too easy to kind of apply the standard decentralization literature to the country and then find some very easy places to kind of criticize the Omanis and say, oh, look, you're not decentralized enough. Look at all the things that you could achieve if you decentralize more. And, and to use that kind of almost uh, Western model of decentralization as, as the benchmark, the, the gold standard, which I think is quite dangerous, particularly given the fact that the Omanis do have these historical challenges. Um, they do have these current challenges. And what they're seeking to do is to create a model that works for them. And, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. And the fact that they've, they've managed to do so, even at their own pace, which has been pretty slow, but the model seems to function. It seems to actually be able to deliver goods and services pretty effectively and uh, to do so at not overly extortionate costs. And the fact that the state remains legitimate and that people are not necessarily even calling for or pushing for greater decentralization. I think in that sense, 
moving slowly, having a plan and, and being flexible enough to be responsive to the different needs of different places within a big picture context of the state, its resources and that kind of thing as well is really very important. And I think in that sense, the Omanis not only have um, a big picture lesson in terms of what the, the controlled hybrid decentralization model can offer, but also in terms of more micro forms of lessons in terms of passing on uh, experiences, lessons learned, uh, what works, what doesn't through their individual experiments. Because actually, famously, Muscat Municipality um, acts as a consultant to other municipalities around the Gulf. Everyone around the Gulf, in a sense, looks to learn lessons from Muscat Municipality and, and regularly they, they go on their own kind of almost miniature diplomatic missions, spreading good practice around all kinds of different things, which I think is, is very interesting that very few people know about that. But actually, I suppose in that sense, the Omanis are already exporting best practice. Uh, and it would be interesting to study that in more detail, I think. So right now, Oman, of course, is in a sense sort of faces two challenges, right? So one was the passing of Sultan Qaboos, which may have been a hard enough transition given how much he was well-liked and how much he had respect. Um, and then, of course, on top of it comes decline in the oil prices and the COVID crisis and a whole other set of crises all, you know, literally within months of each other. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts on what that means for Oman and what we might expect. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you have a lot of experience there. So what do you think is the most important challenges that they face and, and possibilities? A very difficult question, but I think there the are certain path dependencies and certain processes that you can use to kind of map forward and to have some idea of what things will look like. Um, I mean, Sultan Haitham does not have the resources legitimacy of Caboose, but the fact that he was named by Caboose is very important. So one of the things that particularly surprised me in January was that um, the Defence Council actually opened the letter on TV and read it out. I was not expecting that. I was a little bit shocked. But actually, uh, with hindsight, it makes a huge amount of sense that they did that because it gives Hyphen that imprimatur of Caboose and that, that passing on of the legitimacy. We know, of course, that Hyphen was in the Vision 2040 process uh, and has a long experience of, of a range of different issues within the state. So already, in a sense, Hyphen has, has had input. He's put some of his own stamp on how Oman looks, particularly over the past 15, 20 years, and on what Oman will look like um, in the future as well. Um, so I don't necessarily expect that to change, um, but I expect that there will be slight differences in the way in which he rules. We've already seen him appointing more members of the royal household, the royal family, um, to positions of power, which Caboose didn't necessarily do so much, uh, which is interesting and, and quite important as a change, uh, which makes Oman look a little bit more like other Gulf monarchies than in the past. COVID doesn't seem to have massively affected the country. They locked down very early, very strictly. So it's difficult to see exactly how it's impacting the country. Tourism was one of the big pushers in Vision 2040 and over the past couple of five-year plans as well. So that could be problematic. And it's not clear when Oman will open up again, which, of course, is putting certain, certain jobs in certain sectors at risk, particularly tour guides, etc., which could be problematic. But the state has broadly stepped in. Whether or not it'll be able to have the resources to continue that support for long is, is questionable with oil prices being so low. There are some reserves, but the situation is, is not good at all. Since 2016, um, the United States is looking to borrow money on international markets again, uh, which it does relatively infrequently. 
in that sense, it might make sense to borrow at this time. But the, the low oil price does represent a very significant challenge to the state at the moment. So it's likely, I think, that you'll see some other cost drives, which of course might actually mean a push towards other forms of decentralization to further bring perceived efficiencies. And if that can be done in a way in which then further increases the legitimacy of Sultan Hyatt and the NRD state as well, I see that that probably will start to happen. You'll see, you'll see some acceleration in forms of decentralization, I think. But it won't be a very rapid acceleration. It'll still be within the, the broad confines of those particular structures that have already been authorized. I think there might be more push on, on the creation of new authorities as a form of decentralization to further increase FDI. But I don't think it'll be a really radical change because ultimately the state is, is set in a particular way. I think there will be some interesting things coming out of Division 2040. The Omanis have spent a lot of time building up structures around spatial planning uh, and the, the planning and zoning of the country and the allocation of resources and assessing of resources. So I expect that there'll be probably some pushes into other areas, particularly mining as another resource outside of oil itself. But it's, it's not going to be very possible, I think, to diversify away from oil anytime soon. And so oil will still be the, the core of the Armani budgets. And that, of course, represents a significant problem. So we will see some, some fairly big cuts. How that then impacts individual people's lives and how those, those, that belt tightening is communicated to Omani is, is important. But I think the state is still incredibly powerful and does have the ability to manage those discourses. Uh, the way in which it's managed COVID has actually been pretty impressive, I think, and uh, has been fairly popular from the Amanis I've spoken to, uh, and seems very legitimate. So I think the, the state does have significant kind of political legitimacy resources to manage some of these problems, but it, it's likely to be a slightly bumpy ride, I think. But decentralization will probably still continue in various forms. It seems to me be a bit um, slightly dependent on how much it's a bumpy ride outside of Oman as well, right? So I mean, you know, some of these things have a regional or global aspect to them. And so a lot, a lot is contingent on, on many other factors as well. So, but this is, I think you're right. It's extremely helpful to have a, a good and deep picture of the history and how these, how Oman has tended to, to overcome or deal with it, uh, these kinds of pressures and issues. It's not the first time it's had to, it's had to navigate that. No, I think the problem with some analysts is that they look at the numbers and then don't actually look at the politics, the, the culture, the way in which society works because there, it is possible to get by when you have the goodwill of the population, when the population understands um, when they look next door to Yemen and see what Yemen looks like, and, and of course then understand the need to kind of be united and, uh, and to take some level of punishment, particularly when they see other countries around the world going through the same thing. I think the Omani public are actually pretty grown up and pretty responsible, and they know that their leaders do care about them, which is important. And you're right, it depends on how things are communicated in part, right? So these are, there's a lot more agency. It's not just about the numbers, I guess, as part of what, what we're both Yeah. Doing. This is, like I said, this has been extremely helpful. Um, and I really, really appreciate you taking time. Are there any last thoughts or issues that you would like to have? Why didn't we address this or um, other work that you would like to, to bring to everyone's attention? I think Oman is always fascinating. And, and still understudied uh, in so many different ways. But also, I think um, you see some of the commonalities and the potential for, for comparative studies between other Gulf states, which is rather neglected. So I'm starting to push into those areas a bit more. 
I think the vision documents across the Gulf are particularly fascinating uh, and not really studied properly. So I hope to move into those particular areas. But at the moment, I've got to, got to finish two books in the next few months uh, towards the end of this year. So one of which um, should be coming out towards the end of 2021 with Cambridge University Press, which is looking at um, the role of Persian minorities within the UAE historically, but also in terms of, of today, really unpacking them as a community and, and seeing how they relate to Oman, where they to uh, Iran and, and how they situate themselves within the country, uh, what kind of potential threat they pose, how they contribute economically, etc. Um, so that's a project I've been working on for, well, since 2013, actually. It's one of those very slow burn ones, which is finally beginning to, to come together properly. And the other more rapid response is a book that I'm writing with a, a friend of mine, uh, looking at the role of Qasem Soleimani in Iranian and regional politics, which Manchester University Press wants to publish on the, the anniversary of his assassination on the 3rd of January next year. Uh, we've been given a deadline of finishing that book in the next couple of months so that they can actually publish it to coincide with the, with the assassination. We've been working on it for a while before that, so the assassination complicated our plans. But I suppose it makes the book more marketable uh, in this environment. So I have a busy summer ahead. Yes, you do. <laughs> and like I said, again, thank you so much. We look forward to the for, to your coming work as well as and appreciate the work that you've done. No, thanks very much for inviting me. It's been good fun. Always nice to talk about online.